ESPN LA, Kamenetsky Brothers Podcast, Andy Kamenetsky, Brian Kamenetsky. Our guest is a very talented actor with a long and versatile resume. He originated the role of Hannibal Lecter in Michael Mann's 1986 film Manhunter. Other credits include Braveheart, Adaptation, The 25th Hour, Rushmore, The Ring, and The Born Identity. A very well-respected and decorated career on the stage as well. In his new movie, Churchill, he plays Winston Churchill as he wrestles with the emotional stress leading up to the D-Day landings in 1944. The film, which also stars Miranda Richardson and John Slattery, opens June 2nd. Very pleased to welcome Brian Cox to the show. Brian, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Um, I guess to begin, how do you go about tackling a role like Winston Churchill where so much is known about him, people have a vision in their minds about what he sounded like, acted like, whether through history, entertainment? Well, you have to dissect it. You know, I mean, first of all, you have the script. And, of course, this is a, as far as I'm concerned, this script is a no-brainer. It's a brilliant script. It's an original script. It's a script which deals with a particular event, which is the Operation Overlord, better known as D-Day, and the attitude to D-Day by Churchill and, and also by the forces of uh, Eisenhower and Montgomery. So it's a, it's, it's a great, rich script. So the script itself, and then you do the detective work of creating the man. And the man, Churchill, is a kind of... Well, there are many aspects to Churchill. I mean, he's a construct, particularly the performing Churchill, the, the, the one of the great rhetoric uh, and the, the man who kept Britain, uh, you know, who boasted Britain's confidence throughout the entire uh, 1939 to 1945 period uh, with his amazing broadcasts. But again, that's the Churchill that everybody knows, but it's a performing Churchill. And then there's the real Churchill, the Churchill who was depressive. Uh, he had this thing called Black Dog, who consumed an extraordinary amount of alcohol, you know, uh, champagne for breakfast, brandy for lunch, whiskey in the evening, sort of topped up by the odd glass of Sauvignon Blanc and the odd claret. <laughs> so he was, he was quite a character. Doesn't sound too bad, yeah. i got to say. No, so. no, he was, he was good, but it was also a form of self-medication because of his black dog, this depression. And he was also, he had been, in the first war, he had been first lord of the admiralty. He was responsible for one of the biggest disasters of the First World War, which was the Dardanelle campaign and famously Gallipoli, which uh, resulted, uh, the Dardanelle campaign resulted in the death of a quarter of a million soldiers and seamen. And then there was a great majority of these were Anzac forces. They were forces of um, New Zealand and Australian. And, of course, Churchill, as a result, is not particularly popular down in New Zealand. In fact, the truth of the matter is that Churchill was not really popular at all. He was always out on a limb one way or another. He, was always, he always stood against the flow, the tide. And where he was accurate was his, his complete mistrust of Hitler and what was happening in Europe at the time. And the spirit of what he saw as appeasement of the time in the UK. But, you know, it was such a bad, you know, we, we, the war had only been over for less than, well, 20 years. And uh, when we were thinking about going to war again and nobody wanted to go to war again at all. Uh, even though it was a pretty horrendous option, um, 
Hitler. But Churchill stood up against it. And, and as a result, the war did happen. The war was declared in 1939. And Churchill, after a year in the cabinet, uh, he then became the prime minister. And he led the country to victory. But not without enormous challenges. And one of the biggest challenges was D-Day, whether to go or whether not to go. And I actually think in the script that his questions is what makes him greater because he comes across as a really tremendously great human being, which leads to being a great leader. Brian, the, the, the themes that you, you allude to there with the, like, you know, the guilt of Gallipoli and that failed invasion, um, there's also just – he talks a lot about age um, and, and being relevant and being included. And there's so many people in the movie who go out of their way to humor Winston, make him feel like he's part of it. As an actor, when you're drawing on this, how much of the of, of of the sort of the direction that you take for yourself to play the character comes from understanding, you know, those themes, but also, you know, the, the understanding of the man, if that makes sense. Where do you draw those things uh, to be able to well, give that kind of I'm, portrayal? You know, you know I, I'm of a certain age, you know, and Churchill was of a certain age, and he, uh, you know, you always remember your failures. You never remember your successes. I mean. I remember my bad notices. I never remember my good notices, you know, from my work. Right. And so Churchill lived with that on a day-to-day basis. Uh, as I said, he wasn't particularly liked for a lot of the time. And he was, he was, he moved into that extraordinary thing, which very few men have. I mean, Mandela had it, Napoleon had it, which was um, the idea of a man of destiny. And he was a man of destiny. His his life seems to have been leading up to this event. And he was kind of aware that this was happening. But he was also aware that he was part of an old brigade. You know, he was part of a, a time, you know, a different kind of warfare. You know, a warfare that only just, you know, there was still, they still had a cavalry charge in the First World War, which, of course, it was, in, was unheard of. But he did know the terrain, and he did understand the problems of northern France. And it's ironic, and this is what really, you know, I found this out, like, towards the end of the shoot. A military advisor told us that, in fact, they knew about Churchill's plan for D-Day. And when they were at Sandhurst, this guy, when he was at Sandhurst 30 years ago, they put Churchill's plan into the computer to get an analysis. And he rather shamefacedly, and it was very late in the day, he said, well, you know, there was, and I said, so what was the result? And he went, well, you know, apart from a few caveats, and I said, well, so what was the result? And he was a bit humming and hawing about it. And he said, well, the result was that possibly the war would have been six months shorter if they had adopted Churchill's plan, which was a bigger, bigger, you know, to attack on a bigger front. So it's, it's very interesting that, you know, when you're, when you're considered a yesterday's man and you're having to deal with the whole new view of warfare, which was really what, you know, that was Eisenhower's gift. The principle, of course, is the same. The principle of, uh, of amphibious attack and the first wave going down, that doesn't change. But he was considered, you know, it was very hard for him when everybody around him was kind of demurring about his demurral, you know. 
Are you are you actually a cigar smoker in real life? Because obviously there's no, a ton of it, no, and I don't smoke. yeah, because you can't. No, fa- but you weren't faking it. Like you did the full on nostril exhale yeah. thing. I, I, I'll, t- I'll tell you a secret. The cigars were electric. Really? Yeah. Different shades of electric cigars, and it's vapor. And I became an expert at doing it through my nose, and <laughs> it seems to be my <laughs> my greatest success was my my cigar smoking. I mean, initially it was only you know there was the odd one, but then the cigar. You know, the other thing about Churchill is all babies look like Churchill. And Churchill <laughs> looks like all babies, and the cigar was like a form of thumb sucking. It was a comforter, so he was a great one for the cigar. He's always. You know, every photograph is he's got the cigar and you know, and I'm not an inveterate smoker. I don't even smoke, you know, apart from stuff that I have smoked, but not not of the tobacco variety. So <laughs> it, it, it was kind of interesting that he was so consumed by his cigar smoking. That that's that's one of the great movie cheats um that I've heard in a long time. So congratulations <laughs> for uh for pulling that off. Um, I want to, we want to look at the sort of the, the wider uh, scope of your career because you've done so many things with so many different directors. You've worked with Spike Jones, you've worked with Wes Anderson, Spike Lee, Mel Gibson, Woody. I don't know if to list them for you. Um, what are the commonalities that you see in in effective direction to make you know different guys coming at it in different ways, but ultimately creating a, an excellent film? I think the, the commonality is the ability to let go. Let go of the art, you know. Uh, they don't, they don't ding it at you. You know, they have their, they have their shape, they have their vision, they have it. But they're, you know, like Mel is, you know, exhausted as he was in Braveheart. He, you know, you just felt completely safe with him. And that's the thing about with a great director, you feel safe. I mean, Spike Lee is a consummate brilliant director and you know when you're sitting where you are in the scene you know he's understood exactly you're exactly in the right place and they each have different qualities you know uh, Woody has a is just a, he has such a good sense of the, the the feel of his film in terms of its camera movement and everything so he knows how much coverage or how little coverage he needs you know uh, the imagination of Spike Jones, who comes from a whole different world, the sort of digital world, the mm-hmm. world of, you know, that incredible Fat Boy Slim video with Chris, Chris walking. You know, and so there's a great sense of fun. And her, I think, is a wonderful film. I, I, briefly in her, I play a voice in her. But it's a wonderful kind of, you, show, you see what a, a phenomenal director he is. And then some of the younger ones as well, you know, like Wes Anderson and uh, Rupert Wyatt, you know. So I've been very lucky, and I've always found with the directors is they, they have a strong sense of what they want, but they don't, they don't beat it over the head. They, they, un, or they allow it to grow. They organically allow it to grow, and that's the real gift of a great director. Do you, do you like, when you worked with Wes Anderson, he was, that was his, Rushmore was his second, second, second movie. So he's still yeah. a very young director. Do you have a feel for what a movie like that is going to look like once it's in? Because he has such a specific, you know, well, point he, of view. You know, he's, he's got a very, very strong visual sense. Mm-hmm. And he's very, very precise. And in fact, it's an interesting that when we were working on that, Jason uh, Schwartzman was actually very ill. In fact, he had Hodgkin's disease. 
uh, which he recovered, and uh, I believe he's completely well now. I mean, this is you know quite during Rushmore. I didn't. We, I, I didn't had no that. idea yeah. about that. That's amazing. Yeah. No, he was ill, and uh, and uh, he was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant. And Wes was very because it was Jason's first film. He kept saying, "And say it again, and say it again." He kept doing it. He would shoot a whole magazine, and eventually I had to say to Wes, "I said, Wes, you know, let us get a flow on the scene." I said because otherwise. We're sort of, we're landed. You know, we're never going to get the feeling of the scene if you, if you keep saying, say it again, say it again. And he went, oh, okay, all right. <laughs> and he said, and it was fine. You know, and he was learning, you know, that, you know, young directors are learning. They're learning how to do their job. And, of course, he's become a brilliant and consummate director. And all, you know, the, the hotel film, the one about the Boy Scouts. I mean, he's just risen to greater and greater promise and uh, you know and it's just wonderful to work with these guys you know brian singer's the same you know working on x-men with brian singer he's just completely he knows what he's doing his sense of narrative and is is very very powerful and this is it they usually have one thing which they excel in whether it be narrative or whether it be character driven or whether it be look or whether it be the right visual sense of a film you know and if an actor's worth his salt, he goes with that. He, you, 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 you suss that out, and you go down that road on that particular day. Uh, was Spike in particular an element that drew you to the role in 25th Hour? Because it's a terrific movie, and your performance is also terrific. But I could picture it, maybe incorrectly, seeming like a role where there isn't necessarily much on the page. Well, it seemed like that, you know, but the thing about Spike was, you know, very early on, we recorded that long speech, the speech at the end. Yes, yes. And what happened was he loved that speech so much. And David, because it was written by David Benahoff, who also wrote the, you know, who's now gone on to create Game of Thrones. And I also worked with David on Troy. And David rewrote that speech and he made it much bigger. So it became a whole much bigger thing, simply based on, you know, it was, I suppose it's a compliment to me, based on my rendering of the first time round. And Spike got this idea that he sort of developed it and developed that whole, that whole journey, that, that incredible journey where we went to El Paso, the salt flats of El Paso we filmed in Austin, uh, which was, uh, I don't think Spike had ever been to that part of the world, and nor had they ever seen anybody like Spike in that part of the world either. <laughs> So it was a very, very fascinating um, <coughs> development of a, <coughs> of a of a narrative in, in, in terms of the of terms of the film, and um, very freewheeling. And you know, he's just a great you know. But the scenes were the, the, the scenes between Ed and I were so good. That scene before he he goes and has that rant in the in the bathroom of the of the bar. So it 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 it, 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 it and it was an ensemble piece. Yes, so it was a very exciting piece to work on. Um, speaking of scripts, too, in your role as the screenwriting guru, Robert McKee in Adaptation, you, you tell Nicolas right. Cage, it's a terrific movie and, again, terrific performance. You tell Nicolas Cage's character, who's suffering through just major writer's block, that a problematic script can get by if it has a great ending. 
and that characters must change and the change has to come from within. And you can't you can't cheat. You can't, you can't cheat, cheat that. As somebody who's yeah. read a lot of scripts over the years, like, had to like che- basically all of them. Like, <laughs> I saw you say that in an interview once where you, see, you know, asked how many movies you've been in. You said, like, all of them. <laughs> basically the Scottish Samuel L. Jackson. But um, as somebody who's read a lot of those scripts and has to choose from them, how true do you think that is, McKee's advice? I, I think it's the only adage there is. It's, it's, it comes down to the script. If you can make the script work. You know, I mean, I, I did a film uh, which is... Uh, one of my favorite films is not a film a lot of people have seen uh, called The Escapist. And it was a film with a young director called Rupert Wise, who then went on to make the, he did the revival of the, the, of the Apes film, the Planet of the Apes films. And it, it was a very interesting thing because his script, he wrote it, he came to me and he said, look, I, I want to do this film. And I kind of and it was to play a small part in the film. And I'd, I had done a film for him, and he'd won a BAFTA for a short film. And I said, Rupert, I, you know, occasionally I'd like to... I'm, I love being a character actor, but occasionally I'd like to lead from... You know, I'd like to be centre forward rather than just at the back of the field. I said, I don't mind it. I said, I'm, I'm not knocking. It's, it's, it, I, I love that position. So he went away, and he wrote this script called The Escapist. He wrote it for me, and he handed it to me. And I looked at it, the script, and I read it. And I, within 24 hours, I was back at him. And I said, now look... I'm going to help you produce this film, but the thing is, I'm going to put it in a drawer so nobody can touch it, because everybody is going to give you notes on this script and tell you, do it this way, do it that way, do it this way, do it this way, do it that way, give you this note, give you that note, because everybody does that. I said, but we're going to do the script. If we ever get it to do it, we're going to do the script that you originally wrote. And we did, you know, there were one or two changes, but they were minimal because of the thrust of the writing. And when, when there's great writing, you, you have to have the courage to recognize it and go with it. And, you know, I consider myself very lucky that I've worked with some really, really very well-written scripts. You've run the gamut in terms of the experience of the types of movies done from tentpole movies to obviously indies like the one you're in now. What is the, the difference in experience as an actor beyond things like, you know, paychecks and maybe craft services is better on – on you know X Men than it is on Churchill or something like that. Yeah, uh, I don't think we had craft services. It's, it's, it's an American phenomenon. They don't have it in British films. Really? What do you eat? <laughs> uh, no. It, it, <laughs> do you brown bag it? Like, like bring what? a sandwich? How does that work? You know, well, no, you, you you get your cup of tea in the afternoon. They, they, <laughs> they had they have a little they have a little place where you can go. Get okay. <laughs> They don't go to the extreme the Americans do. I mean, I love craft services. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> it's very difficult for weight. You've got to watch it, you know. Right. My friend Brian Denny says, I always get fat on craft services. But uh, the interesting thing about it is that uh, I, I, think, I think the great, the great virtue is um, the, it's, the, it's the variety. You know, it's the variety of the work that is very appealing. I don't look at something, I look at always, I believe you're only as good as your next job. Your last job is gone, that's gone, that's done. But it's the variety and it's the onward moving thing. So you, get, you go into the next phase and it could be super troopers, it could be Troy. And that's the joy of it, you know, because it's, it's what an actor loves is variety. The difference, you know, you don't always be playing the same thing, playing something entirely different. And that's what I, I consider myself immensely blessed that I've 
that I've done things like Super Troopers and I've done things like uh, 25th Hour, which couldn't be more contrasted. And I also, what I also love is because you only ever remember the bad notices. You never remember the good ones. But I love things like when I got a bad notice for, um, I think it was for Super Troopers. Yeah, it was for Super Troopers where, they, where the critic said, if Mr. Cox, this was the critic of Cosmo Landlessman, critic of the Observer magazine, uh, Observer newspaper in, in, in the UK, and he said, if Mr. Cox needed the money, I'm sure somebody could have lent it to him. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the first thing that he got wrong was they didn't pay a lot of money. <laughs> and I didn't do it for that reason. I did it for the gig and I did it for the community. And those guys you know, uh, Broken Lizard, which happened to be immensely talented, and it was the, you know, it was the stoner movie of all time. So in a way you went, no, this is, I'm so glad I did that. You're in the upcoming one, correct? I'm not, you know, I'm a populist. I'm not, I mean, I believe in art and cinema, but I also believe in, you know, I was a a kid, that was what I loved. I loved, you know, my my (laughs) heroes were Danny Kaye, Jerry Lewis, you know, and of course Spencer Tracy and Marlon Brando, but that was that was I run the gamut. But so I, I'm happy to embrace all of that. I, I, I think by definition, any review that snooty of Super Troopers probably misses the point. So, well, uh, it, it misses the point. It <laughs> yeah. missed the point. Um, last last thing for you, Brian. Uh, I, one of the, the the things that's striking to me about Churchill and about the movie is the. Like, we're in an age where a lot of Churchill performances are happening. I just binge-watched John Lithgow in The Crown play, uh, play it, and I've seen, you know... Andy Gary Oldman Gary is going to be playing him later this year, right. I think, in The Darkest Hour. And there are, just, there are a lot of Churchill performances. And in a lot of ways, people, I think, remember him from those types of things um, as much as, like, actual footage of the real person. How much do well, I think this... it's also... I think it's great. I mean, it's, it's in the zeitgeist. You know, right. I mean, I think what's missing is principle. You know, we lack, there seems to be in our, in our political lives, there doesn't seem to be a lot of principle flying around. A lot of, you know, people, you know, old-fashioned values and virtues for, and whatever you say about Winston, he represented those things. Mm-hmm. And that's why he is never out of fashion, because you can't get round him. Right. You know, he was that thing, a man of destiny. He was like Mandela. He was like Napoleon. He stepped into the breach of something and brought everybody together in a way which was, you know, my parents, I, my hometown, we weren't keen on Churchill at all, but we did recognize that he was the great, and he did recognize that he got us through the war, and he actually, in the end, was the guy who was behind us winning the war, and you can't get you can't get round that. And so, I, and also, I think Churchill was like you mentioned. I played Hannibal Lecter. Well, you know, Hannah, everybody's played Hannibal Lecter since I've played it. You know, you know, they've had the child of Hannibal Lecter, and they've, they've gone crazy on it. But, Hop- but Hopkins is very different. Lecter's yeah, a great role. It's a fantastic role, and it's open to all kinds of interpretation. It's the same with Churchill. Churchill is is like um, absolutely. Like a Shakespearean role, it's like King Lear or Hamlet or Macbeth. There's some, and even an art piece. There's even allusions to Shakespeare because he used Shakespeare. And you know, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. You know, the way he formulated his speeches. So in that sense, it is a great role. In that sense, it's a role that one is inspired to play. 
because he is an inspiring man, you know? It's, it's open for people and open to, for interpretation. I, I just think that I think I've been very lucky in getting a really great script and a, a really interesting character, a really interesting take on it. Well, the film is Churchill. It opens June 2nd. Uh, Brian Cox, thank you very much for the time. This is a real pleasure for us. My pleasure.